Please open up with me to Mark, Gospel of Mark, chapter 10. I'm going to read Mark 10, starting in verse 32, all the way to chapter 11, verse 10. Mark 10, 32 to 11, 10. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him, and spit on him, and flog him, and kill him, and after three days he will rise." And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they say to him, we're able. Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant. But it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, Call him. They called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he's calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, Let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. And when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord is need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? They said to them, 
what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it. And he sat on it, and many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed after were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. This is God's word. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, how undeserving we are to be here this morning to feed upon your grace given to us in your gospel, applied to us by your Spirit so that we might behold in faith and adoration your Son. Oh, but Lord, we ask for that grace. Give it to us, we pray, to nourish us, feed us, certainly convict us of sin. And Father, I pray, humble us. Bring us low, so that we might in true faithfulness behold and accept and give all praise to Jesus Christ true Lord of lords, and our only Savior. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, as we continue after a week off, it's not a vacation. It was tough for me not to be here. As we continue through the Gospel of Mark, I think we begin to hear the the ominous drums off in the background, but now getting louder and closer. Verse 32 sets us up to begin to expect something big, something serious on the horizon. It says, they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. Throughout the narrative so far, Jesus has been confronted and antagonized by Pharisees from Jerusalem. They're the self-described sworn enemies of Jesus. And and now Jesus has set a straight-line course for Jerusalem. A one-way ticket into the den of thieves and vipers. That's why Mark tells us at the end of verse 32 that they were all amazed and even afraid. In the minds of Jesus' followers, this isn't the move to keep their new young religious leader alive. Again, again, they've never really understood why their new young religious leader came in the first place, have they? I mean, he's already told them twice throughout the gospel, if we've been paying attention, what the goal of his mission is. Back in chapter 8, verses 31 and 32, he told them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He tells them again later in chapter 9, verses 30 and 31. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days, he will rise. That's been the focus of Jesus' ministry. Yes, he's done miracles, profound miracles. But miracles cannot redeem sinners. He's given perfect teaching, profound teaching. But teaching alone does not redeem sinners. Now he's come for something much more grand, something way bigger. He's got to go to Jerusalem because it's there where all of history and creation finds its triumphant purpose. What's the purpose? 
Look at verse 33. See, we're going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. That's the goal. The cross. He's going there and he's, he's on a mission And that mission is to go to die. What drives a man? What what drives God to march with determination towards his sure death? The answer is love, right? John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He gave him over to death out of love. How about that mind-blowing passage out of Philippians 2, which tells us that Jesus Christ, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Here we see not only the love of God, but the love and humility of the Son. Humility to become a man, and in love to give himself over to die, even on a cross. So that's first. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's not only the culmination of Jesus' ministry and, and, and what he's determined to get to, but it's the central point and focus of all history. It's his death and resurrection that alone can can merit the redemption, the salvation of sinful men and women. Do you believe that about Jesus Christ? Every other religion in the world sees its founder, its leader, as, as someone who's set an example. Someone whose life and teaching was this model. Sadly, many Christians today have only seen Jesus as an example, as a model of someone to follow. What would Jesus do? That's you this morning. If Jesus is no more than than that, a, a great, great man whose teaching and exemplary life was just meant to be admired and, and followed, I'm afraid that you might have missed the gospel. You've missed why Jesus came. You've missed the condemnation unto death, his crucifixion, taking the wrath of God, and his resurrection and ascension on our behalf. In fact, Jesus clarifies for us in even stronger words down in verse 45 why it is he came. He tells us that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom. This was something only he could do. It was his life and his life alone that could be given as a ransom for sinners. Friends, that's the heart of the gospel. That's the heart of Christianity. And that's at the heart of the meaning of life. Look at that little word there in verse 45, the word for. In the Greek, it's the word anti, which means instead of, in place of, as a substitute for. It's underlying the fact that by ourselves, we are trapped, enslaved, imprisoned under our own guilt and sin. 
We can no more pay for our freedom and gain a clean record than a murderer can be declared innocent by arguing that he's never broken the speed limit. By the way, we can't just ask God to forgive us. Can the guilty criminal just ask the judge, forgive me? Justice as justice must be enacted. The cost of sin must be absorbed by someone. Thanks be to God that in Jesus Christ, the divine Son of God who became the Son of Man, He alone who never sinned, who never incurred guilt before the Father, stepped into our place as a condemned sinner, took our sin, our guilt, and our punishment on Himself, so that in His life and death, a true and perfect ransom could be made. It is finished, He said on the cross. Only someone who is both fully God and fully man can reconcile guilty man to a holy and just God. So the Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many. This passage in Mark first gives us two glimpses, I think, at how to respond to this truth. The first we see in verses 35 through 45 as the wrong response, a response of pride, arrogance, self-reliance, and then the second response we see later in verses 46 through 53 with 52 with blind Bartimaeus is, is the right response. A response of helplessness, humility, faith, and boldness. And then we'll close with a quick look at the true humility and lowliness of Jesus, who is our only King and Savior. So if the goal of Jesus' life and ministry is to in complete humility, give his life as a ransom for others, then it seems that Jesus' two closest disciples, James and John, have completely missed the point. Look what they ask in verse 35. They came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. You can immediately see, I hope, the contrary nature of this question when juxtaposed to Jesus' description of why he's come. He's come to serve and to die for us. James and John now want Jesus to grant to them their heart's desire. Yes, in one sense, that's not bad, right? Jesus does grant our heart's desire at times if those desires match with the nature and character of God and his kingdom. But what's the desire of James and John here? Does their heart match the heart of Jesus? Far from it. Look at verse 37. Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Here the disciples have their minds set on glory. It's going to be great. Set on fame, authority, recognition. Perhaps they thought by being so close to Jesus these past three years, and and if we ask him now, just before he enters triumphantly into Jerusalem, probably thinking, by the way, that as he does so, he's going to usher in the kingdom of God. If we ask him now, maybe we too can rule with him, each one on either side of him. Imagine it. Jesus the king, James and John, prime ministers of sorts. Oh, how backwards they got it. The question exposing their hearts is as selfish and vainglorious 
Jesus responds immediately by telling them that they don't know what they're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or to be baptized with the baptism with which I'm being baptized? In other words, can you drink the cup of wrath that I will drink? Will you be able to suffer and die like me? Will you be baptized or or utterly immersed and overcome with suffering and death like I will? You see, they've failed to realize that any amount of glory, any kind of honor, must come first through suffering and death. They want the prestige and the honor, but they fail to realize the mission, which is Christ's death. And friends, this is the way God has ordained it from before the foundation of the world. The cross of Jesus Christ, which is the clearest and most complete expression of God's heart, shows us, reveals to us, the centrality of suffering. The centrality of death. Before glory comes death. Listen here to two crucial passages. Revelation 13.8. John is speaking here in Revelation 13 about the Antichrist in the last days. And, And John says this. All who dwell on earth will worship it, the Antichrist. Everyone, and that's not a good thing, by the way. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb that was slain. In other words, there's a book that God has before the foundation of the world, and the title of the book, of which he writes people's names in, is the book of the life of the Lamb that was slain. Before God even spoke light into existence, he had the slain, slaughtered lamb, his son, in view. Again, see how Paul argues in 2 Timothy 1.9. He says, we've been saved and called to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Grace has been given before the ages began in Christ. Christ's death, which secured grace for us, was in the mind and determined will of God. This is how one theologian describes the suffering and centrality of Christ's death in relationship to all of life. He says, there's no greater display of the glory of the grace of God than the suffering of the Son of God. And God's design from the beginning was to display maximally the glory of His grace. And therefore, suffering is an essential thread in the tapestry of the universe. Let me read that one more time. There's no greater display of the glory of the grace of God than the suffering of the Son of God And God's design from the beginning was to display maximally the glory of his grace. And therefore, suffering is an essential thread in the tapestry of the universe. From the beginning, it must be. That's a radical shift in thinking about suffering. It's a radical shift in thinking that James and John and, and the disciples and followers of Jesus hadn't yet grasped. That God designed from before the creation of time to show his grace most beautifully, most clearly and vibrantly in the way his son will serve us 
and that way is his death? Friends, that's what we'll be worshiping Jesus about for eternity to come. Revelation tells us that we will sing in heaven continually concerning the Lamb, the Lamb, the Lamb. The Lamb is Jesus Christ, the slaughtered, sacrificial Lamb on our behalf. I'm diving into this because it's not only what Jesus was teaching the disciples, and it's something that they missed. I'm diving into this because it's something I think we miss. This is weird to us. We think about suffering and death as as something that, that is like this cosmic anomaly. We ask God, why? As if he took his eyes off us for a second and let something slip, like he messed up. But he hasn't. To be sure, suffering and death are a result of sin, and God hates sin, and God hates death. Death is an enemy to God and is something he will eradicate in the future forever. There will be a time when there will be no more death and no more suffering, praise God. But we miss the absolute bigness and grandeur and majesty of God if we think that suffering and death was just an accident that God has to now spend all of redemptive history trying to fix and clean up. Friends, God never says, oops. Nothing takes God by surprise And nothing happens outside his complete sovereign control. And since the beginning, God ordained that through the wretchedness of suffering, namely the suffering and death of his only son, he would bring about perfection. The beauty and splendor of the grace of Jesus Christ dying for sinners like you and me. This highlights the love of God. This highlights the humility of God. This highlights the profound grace of God. Who am I that Jesus should suffer and die for me? Answer, no one. But wow, how good is God? You know, this seems maybe like a rabbit trail, but it's not. Jesus was determined to go to Jerusalem because it was there where he would fulfill the point and purpose of all history in dying as a ransom for many. It's in light of this that the question of James and John seems so inappropriate and out of place. For that matter, the anger of the other ten disciples. See, their anger with James and John is not because they asked Jesus to sit at his right and left-hand side. Their anger is because they didn't think to ask him first. They want the glory. This is why Jesus tells them in verses 42 through 44 that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. In other words, guys, you've got it all wrong. You've missed the point of everything. Life is not about authority. It's not about pomp and circumstance and lording it over others. The person who gets it is the person who serves. The greatest person in God's kingdom is the person who's always concerned with others, serving others, making much of and loving others. Living under God's kingdom is living always to be others-focused. Doesn't that make sense, too, when you think and meditate on the Trinity? The Father always loving 
and giving deference to the Son and the Son to the Father and the Spirit to the Son and Father. It's an other-focused existence. You know what, says Jesus? That is because of what God is like. Look at verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Humility, service, love, and giving is essential to life because it's essential to who God is in Jesus Christ. Spiritual leadership in God's kingdom, spiritual leadership within the church, is not and has never been getting people to do what you want them to, leading people to follow you and adore you and love you. A true leadership in this upside-down kingdom of God's rule is humble service. It's always been. Even the eternal Son of God from before the foundation of the world had humble service to us in his mind. From before the world was created, dying for us in Jerusalem was his plan. St. Augustine hits on this, I think, when he was asked what he thought the essential quality of being a Christian is. What does it really mean to be a Christian? How would you answer that? What would you say is the stuff that makes a Christian. Augustine said that there were three answers. Humility, humility, and humility. Everything else, he said, grows out of the soil of Christian humility. There's, I think, a test for us, too, in verse 45, to to measure our grasp of God-centered, others-focused Christian humility. Jesus tells us that he came not to be served, but to serve. I wonder how many of us, I know I fall into this trap daily, but how many of us come to church or go through our days thinking that what we're doing, we're doing to serve Jesus. We've got to worship and and sing and tithe and pray because we need to serve Jesus. We need to not do this and start doing that. Because Jesus needs our service. Friends, beware of serving Jesus. He doesn't need our service. We need him to serve us. Paul himself preaches this to the Athenians in Acts 17. He says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. In him we live and move and have our being. Here's the test. Does that make you feel uncomfortable? Are you just itching to try and do something for Jesus? On the last day when Christ asks why you should be welcomed into heavenly glory, will you answer by pointing at all the things you did for Jesus? No. True humility says, nothing in my hand I bring, only to the cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Not the labors of my hands can fulfill the law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save. And now alone. I think we get 
a really clear picture of the opposite of this in verses 46 through 52. Jesus and his disciples in the crowd are getting near to Jerusalem, and as they're passing through Jericho, verse 46 says that there was a blind beggar named Bartimaeus sitting by the roadside. Here's a man who's probably from birth never been able to see. And because of this, his life has been reduced to begging. He can't work. He cannot produce and provide. He can't get married and have a family and support a wife and family. Here's a man who is in every way in great need. He's needy. He's blind. But as one commentator put it, even though he's here at the roadside with no sight, compared to everyone else following Jesus and seeing Jesus, he alone shows incredible insight. He hears this great commotion of movement, a large crowd of people passing through Jericho, and perhaps he overhears the name Jesus of Nazareth. Now mind you, he, he's never seen Jesus, has he? He's never been able to see him do the miracles he's done, walk on water, cast out demons, feed thousands by creating food out of nothing, heal lepers, raise the dead. He's blind, and, and he's been positioned in life only to this roadside begging. And here's what makes him, I think, such a great character for us this morning. We've never seen Jesus with our own eyes. We've never seen the things that Jesus did. Like blind Bartimaeus, we've only heard secondhand the accounts and stories of Jesus of Nazareth. We've not been eyewitnesses to the ministry of Jesus. Because we've not seen Jesus, does that mean we can also not speak to Jesus? No. Look at verse 47. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. This is... This is a profound declaration by a man nobody considered important or worthy enough to serve Jesus. It's a prayer of true humility. He cries out for mercy. Throughout the Bible, it's sinners who cry out for mercy. And who do people in Scripture ask mercy from? Only God. The man, Jesus of Nazareth, who alone can show divine mercy... And he even calls him here the son of David, connecting him to the redemptive promises of the Davidic covenant. In other words, this man, Jesus of Nazareth, he's king. He's a divine king. And he's a king who can show mercy. And this poor blind beggar who has nothing to lose, who is in a position of complete need, cries out to Jesus, yells for him, Jesus! Have you cried out? For Jesus of Nazareth? Are you still coming to him in an effort to serve him and gain a place of honor? Just like today, so it was then that the religious people, the people who turned Jesus into another step onto their way up in life, well, these people are embarrassed by his neediness. In their religious pride, they're embarrassed by people who cannot serve and who have nothing to bring to the table. So in verse 48, many rebuked him to be silent. Quiet. Shut up, man. But look at his persistence. He keeps on crying out, Son of David, have mercy on me. He can't stop and he won't stop. His neediness and and humility 
drives him to keep on calling out for Jesus. Why? Because he sees his need. Because he knows how desperate his situation is. He can't help but cry out. And friends, that's not arrogance. That's not pride. Pride says, oh, I'm too embarrassed to bring this up. I don't need to make a fuss about this. I just keep it to myself. And that's pride because you're too concerned with yourself and how others might see you. Or, oppositely, pride says, oh, crying out is for the weak. I'm my own man. I'm strong enough. I don't need the pity and help of others. I've got a strong work ethic, and so I can fix this on my own. That's arrogance and pride because you're too concerned with yourself, and you're trusting in yourself. Now, Bartimaeus is showing humility because he's honest about himself. He honestly sees how bad his situation is, and he's willing to plow through every social structure set up in order to get to Jesus, the Son of God, the Son of Man. Jesus, help me. So Jesus, perhaps with a smile on his face, calls for him to come over. Look how he responds in verse 50. Throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. What joy, what immediacy, what unbounded zeal and vigor. Is that how Jesus called you? Some of us look like we're following Jesus in a chain gang, trudging along, serving Jesus another day. Not Bartimaeus. Not men and women who have been called out of blindness to Jesus himself. There's there's a spring in their step. There's passion and zeal. And there's a coming to Jesus with joy. Look what Jesus asks Bartimaeus in verse 51. What do you want me to do for you? It's the exact same question he asked to James and John. Exactly. I think he did that because he's highlighting here the difference in heart. And the way people follow after and come to Jesus. James and John didn't get it. Yet. They will. But as of now, they're not quite there, and they're following Jesus out of pride. This is good for me. Many of the followers were following Jesus out of mere curiosity. Friends, it's no different with us. Just because you're here at church doesn't mean Jesus is super pleased with you. Some of us, he is. What's going on in your heart? Are you here to work and and serve your way into glory? Are you here merely out of curiosity? Or are you here like Bartimaeus, someone who is acutely aware of how blind and needy you really are, desperate enough to come and follow Jesus? Oh, Jesus is pleased with that. Bartimaeus answers by saying, Rabbi, and not just rabbi, which means teacher, actually says here, Rabbi, which means my great teacher. There's a strong intimacy here. Bartimaeus is clinging to Jesus. My great teacher, my Jesus, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed after him on the way. His whole life has changed here in the blink of an eye. And immediately he begins to follow Jesus toward Jerusalem. 
He doesn't go back to say bye to any loved ones, if he had any. He doesn't go and use his new site for private personal gain. No, he's following Jesus. He's sticking close to a Savior. And specifically in this context, he's following Jesus to the cross. That's where they're going, remember? To Jerusalem. Following Christ then, and following Christ now, is always about following him to the cross. It's a life of following our master in embracing humble service, in embracing the cross-transformed suffering of Christian service. If we're honest, we know this, we all suffer, whether we're Christian or not. But for true followers of Christ, even though suffering still happens, suffering and death have been transformed. It's still there, but now it's, it's redemptive. Suffering becomes sanctifying. In our identifying with Christ and following him in this life, we follow him now in a life like his, bearing the cross like his. Serving others daily by dying to self and living in humility. Focused on others all to the end that one day we will reign with Jesus in glory. But the glory of heaven doesn't come without the pain of Jerusalem. The cross always precedes glory. And so gospel believers follow Jesus like Bartimaeus. They follow him even into Jerusalem, worshiping faithfully all the way to the cross. As I read before, there's no greater display of the glory of the grace of God than the suffering of the Son of God. And God's design from the beginning was to display maximally the glory of his grace, and therefore suffering is an essential thread in the tapestry of the universe. God's grace, we are enabled to partake and participate in that grace by suffering. Curious, did anybody listen to Ravi Zacharias this morning? Anybody at all? One person, Tim in the back. All right, Tim. He preached almost on this, a way better sermon than I preached. And he had a great point that he said, if you want to see true wisdom in the followers of Christ, those who have truly been humbled, look for those who have suffered and persevered in their faithfulness through that suffering. God shows incredible grace and brings himself profound glory as he brings us through the storms that he's ordained for us to get through. Beginning of chapter 11, we see Jesus now finally approach Jerusalem. To be sure, Jerusalem is the city of David. And here is Jesus, the son of David, the divine king of kings himself. But how does our Lord enter into his city? Like the Roman kings of the day, on mounted chariots, on a noble steed with sword high, and his hand high in the whole city cheering him on? Not quite. He enters on a donkey, a donkey that wasn't even his to begin with. And as he rides this mule, it's his ragtag group of followers who celebrate his entrance into the city, laying before him leafy branches, shouting Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It is by all accounts an entrance of humility, an entirely unremarkable entrance for the Son of God himself. Of course, this is the way it's supposed to be, because it's the shame of the cross that awaits him. It's the humility of the cross that is foremost on his mind. And though the shouts of Hosanna are ringing in his ear, 
shouts of the coming kingdom of David, Jesus knows that soon it will be the shouts of crucify him, crucify him. The shouts of mockery, disdain, hatred, worst of all, abandonment. The suffering of God's wrath and the Father's abandonment. What drives Jesus to enter this situation with determination and resolve? In an awkward, humiliating entrance on a donkey? It's the humility of love. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It was his love for us. He was going to serve us and to die for us. Oh, church, visitors, everybody here, I pray that we be like Bartimaeus. Not only crying out in complete neediness for Jesus, but following him, clinging to him, and resting in his serving and dying.